Psalm 93, and, uh, and I'll be reading from the, the King James uh, version of the Bible. So, uh, so let's please um, stand together as we read the Lord's Word together. Psalm 93. The Lord reigneth. He is clothed in majesty. The Lord is clothed with strength. Wherewith he hath girded himself, the world also is established that it cannot be moved. Thy throne is established of old. Thou art from everlasting. The floods have lifted up, O Lord. The floods have lifted up their voice. The floods have lifted up their waves. The Lord on high is mightier than the noise of many waters, yea, than the mighty waves of the sea. Thy testimonies are very sure. Holiness becometh thine house, O Lord, forever. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. And uh, he's coming to proclaim God's word to us this morning. Jane and I had the privilege of spending some time in fellowship with Cecil and his wife, Margaret. And it was just, just so amazing to hear their story. And uh, it was, uh, many of you probably don't know that, that, uh, that my Jane's first name really is Margaret um, as well. But they're very similar to us. There's a little bit of an age difference and they met a little bit later in life. And so to be thinking about this could be us in a few years' time. And, and what, a, what a neat opportunity it was just to sit down and to get to know them better and, but, the, but the thing that really encouraged us the most was, was to, to hear a brother and sister who really are, are, are thinking the same things we are thinking about the Lord and about his word. Our brother uh, leads a ministry called Take Heed Ministries, and it comes from, from Jesus' warning in Matthew 24 that we should take heed that no one deceive us. And we are living in a day and an age when every time we turn around, it seems that somebody or something is trying to deceive us. And although I believe, I'm starting to preach now, sorry, but, but it's, it seems that, that this has always been the case, but that now it, it seems as though that the stakes are higher, that it's, it seems to be um, even more a dangerous time because it has just so um, infiltrated the church. And so uh, our, our brother's ministry, it's, it's an apologetics ministry, and we talked a bit about this last Wednesday night. It doesn't mean that, that, that our brother is sorry for Christianity, that apologetics means it's, a, it's an explanation. So it's explaining the faith. It's, it's contending for the faith. And a lot of it is done um, in, the, in the public square. And, uh, and the Lord has, has given a brother a, a, a spiritual and biblical discernment to be able to, to distinguish between truth and error. And now, his, if, if you appreciate what you're going to hear this morning, we would ask that you would come back on, on Wednesday because he's going to come and share some more with us about it, and, and we're going to be continuing um, in the near future, going to be continuing on our Wednesday night Bible study discussing apologetics, which is, which is, I believe, a really important thing to understand in our day and age. 
So I'd love to, to introduce and ask our brother Cecil Andrews to come up and share God's word with us. Thank you, brother. Well, friends, can I say it is both a joy and an honor to be standing here this morning. Uh, Margaret and I actually fellowshiped in your church about three years ago. Uh, I have a brother and sister-in-law who live in Kelowna, and we have visited them on occasions. And as I say, when we were here in 2009, we actually came to the morning service here. So little did I think then that three years later, I would be actually standing here ministering God's word. Uh, as John has said, Margaret and I met with him and Jane yesterday morning, and he was talking earlier about the unity in the church that has developed, and I can tell you there was an immediate unity yesterday morning. We were so bonded together uh, in the cords of love uh, for our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, and when that happens, it truly is a special occasion. We were delighted to hear that they were married on the 10th of August, some 24 years and 355 days after Margaret and I got married. And if you can work that out, that means we were celebrating our silver wedding anniversary on the 20th of August. And that is really the reason for us being here in Kelowna. Uh, we, this is part of our celebrations uh, of that occasion. And uh, uh, as John said, there's a, a bit of an age difference between Margaret and I. We actually met in Jerusalem. Uh, Margaret lived about six miles away from me in Northern Ireland, but I had to take the scenic route via Jerusalem to meet her. Uh, and uh, we were engaged some three months after we met and married about another eight months after that. And of course, Margaret says, well, I didn't have time on my side. So uh, that's a little bit of, of our background. Uh, as John said, I have an apologetics ministry called Take Heed, and uh, I'll be sharing more about that, God willing, on Wednesday evening. But this morning, uh, we're going to focus our thoughts uh, very much on this lovely psalm that uh, John read earlier, uh, Psalm number 93. In the course of my studies on it, I read somewhere that this was John Calvin's favorite psalm. Uh, I also discovered that uh, Charles Spurgeon described it as a psalm of omnipotent sovereignty. And I think that description is excellent. Uh, for the believer, it is a psalm that should dispel any doubt or despair, or depression that enters into your life. And uh, uh, as John said very early on, yes, as believers, we sometimes are confronted by doubts and uh, despair and, and desperation. But I think that happens when we take our eyes off the God who has loved us and who has saved us. And so this psalm will call us back to a true appreciation of the God who is our God. I think if I was to say that we live in a world that is very much in turmoil in many aspects, I don't think too many people would disagree with me. Uh, turmoil is an interesting word. When you look it up in the dictionary, it has three ingredients, confusion, agitation, and disturbance. And in many areas of the world, you find these things, confusion, agitation, and disturbance. 
Uh, economically, the world is certainly in turmoil. Uh, Margaret and I live in Northern Ireland, which is part of the United Kingdom, which sadly is part of what is known as the European Union. Uh, our preference would certainly be not to be members of it, uh, but the European Union is in an economic mess. Uh, country after country is having to get bailed out uh, financially and uh, they keep pouring money into this black hole that's called the European Union. Uh, the corruption economically is unbelievable. Uh, I think for the last 16 or 17 years, the accountants for the European Union have declined to sign off the accounts because so much money is unaccounted for. So economically, the world is in turmoil. I think last year, the United States almost defaulted uh, on its debts. They were sort of rescued at the brink by increasing their borrowing power. Politically, the world is in turmoil. Uh, over a year ago, they had the so-called Arab Spring all along North Africa, where people were rising up and they were uh, removing leaders and so on. And uh, we're told that they're going to have democracy, but uh, that, that's a, a, a pipe dream, really. Because the reality is that where you have countries that are very much dominated by Islam, you will never get democracy. Uh, because Islam, true Islam, is totally opposed to democracy. Uh, Islam believes that only the Sharia law of Allah is what men should live by. And to think that ordinary mere mortals have the right to elect politicians, to uh, dream up legislation and enact it, they think that is totally wrong. And so they will use uh, democratic freedoms, of course, to gain power, and then they will destroy democracy. So, uh, as I say, political turmoil uh, is very much uh, around the world. And then in the natural world, again, it seems to be there's a conveyor belt of natural disasters, whether it happens to be earthquakes, tsunamis, tornadoes, typhoons, flooding, bushfires, whatever it happens to be, droughts down in Texas and places like that, lots and lots of turmoil around the world. So economically, politically, naturally, there's lots of turmoil. Communally, the world is in turmoil. Uh, and again, we, we see that particularly in Europe where because of the European Union, there are no border controls and people are able to move en bloc, en masse, and settle in a different country. And the problem is that when they do that, they don't assimilate themselves into the culture of the country that they've gone to, but rather they kind of set up a state within the state. And the result is there are tensions and frictions, and that's very much in evidence uh, in, in Europe in particular. Uh, in Northern Ireland, uh, we had what were known euphemistically as the Troubles. We had about 30 years of communal strife, and that was because of two cultures clashing together. Well, you can imagine in Europe when you have all these people migrating and immigrating and so on, and there are there's trouble down the line. You know, I, I don't claim to be a prophet, uh, but as I say, I do believe that there is trouble down the line. And of course, uh, a lot of the communal strife is caused by the political elite uh, who uh, lorded over the people. Very often we are ruled by people who have never lived in the real world. Uh, they've been born with a silver spoon in their mouth and they've never had to manage a household budget and they've never had to run a business. And so how can they ever run a country? And uh, unfortunately, uh, these are the days that we are, are living in. And religiously, we're living in days of great turmoil. Uh, Christianity 
is so blurred from what it used to be. Uh, everything seems to be a shade of gray. There doesn't seem to be any black and white any longer. Uh, and things that were clearly defined in the Word of God as being wrong and sinful, well, even today, evil is being called good by those who profess to be Christians. So, as I say, we're living uh, in very dangerous days in the religious world. Every opinion is equally valid as far as the rulers are concerned. And for anyone to get up and say, Christ alone is the only savior of sinners, well, that's just not politically correct in the day and age that you and I are living in. But you know, we read Psalm 93, and there's no new thing under the sun. The days of turmoil that you and I are experiencing today, they experienced those in Old Testament times too. If you take the early verses of the book of Habakkuk, God's prophet was lamenting the state of the nation, and he was saying to God, do you not see what's happening, basically? And of God, of course, God assured him, yes, I, I know what's happening, and I'm going to do a work that you will not believe. And the work that he was going to do was the children of Israel had departed from the ways of God, and God was going to bring in the Babylonians, and they were going to enslave them. And that was going to be their, their punishment, if you like, for their disloyalty. But it was also going to be the means that God would use to draw them back to himself. And you know, in many ways in the Western world, the Western world, the so-called Christian world, has so departed from the ways of God that the rise of non-Christian religions, which can be quite violent in our midst, I believe, is very much the means by which God may well draw people back to himself. So Habakkuk, there was days of political corruption and so on. The book of Amos, too, there were uh, days of great turmoil, uh, Climatically, they were going through very difficult days in Amos. Uh, the Lord sent drought, then he sent rain, and that ruined all the crops. And uh, I think your June was pretty much the same as our June back uh, in the UK. We had the wettest June we ever had on record, and it was cold. And the result was that lots of vegetables and crops and so on were waterlogged in the field, and mildew was appearing. And of course, that's even mentioned by name in the book of Amos. Uh, also in the book of Amos, uh, young men were losing their lives in wars. And sadly, we have wars ongoing, and uh, young men are losing their lives, and you sometimes wonder, is it worth it? You know, our political leaders have taken us into wars, and you say, well, why did you do that? And uh, there's great debates about that back home. But even in the days of Amos and Habakkuk, despite all of the things that were happening, these prophets of God were directing the people back to focus on God. In Amos, he directs him back to the Lord, the God of hosts. And Habakkuk, uh, at the end of uh, chapter 3, he says, Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will join the God of my salvation. The Lord God is my strength. And so, even if there's turmoil in your life or my life, in your country, my country, let us keep our eyes fixed on God. Now, we don't know exactly who the author of Psalm 93 was, and we don't know the circumstances in which it was written. 
some commentators speculate that perhaps there was uh, trouble on the horizon of the nation, perhaps forces uh, were gathering against it, uh, and the radar was suggesting that invasion was imminent. We don't know for sure, but obviously there was some sort of uh, warning ahead, and God had a word through the psalmist. He was drawing the people to take their eyes off the uh, approaching danger and focus upon the God of our salvation. Uh, Psalm 93 is uh, one of what they call a series of enthronement psalms. Enthronement psalms. And as we, we come to look at it, I want to give you a, a few headings and then we'll flesh them out a little bit. In Psalm 93, we see, first of all, what I would call a dogmatic declaration. Now, to be dogmatic in the age that you and I are living in, that's not very popular either. Uh, we have within professing Christendom a lot of what are called postmodernists who basically say there's no such a thing as absolute truth. And if you get up and preach, thus saith the Lord, well, you're being arrogant and you shouldn't do that. But the psalmist here, there's no ifs or buts or maybes. When he starts off the psalm, he just tells it straight. He says there, the Lord reigneth, he is clothed with majesty. So you have a dogmatic declaration. And as I say, Psalm 93 is part of a cluster of what we call enthronement psalms. If you just look forward to Psalm 95, the first three verses say, O come, let us sing unto the Lord, let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before his presence with thanksgiving and make a joyful noise unto him with psalms. For the Lord is a great God and a great King above all gods. Psalm 96, first four verses. Oh, sing unto the Lord a new song. Sing unto the Lord all the earth. Sing unto the Lord. Bless his name. Show forth his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations, his wonders among all peoples. For the Lord is great and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. Verse 10. Say among the nations that the Lord reigneth. The world also shall be established, that it shall not be moved. He shall judge the peoples righteously. Psalm 97 verse 1. The Lord reigneth. Let the earth rejoice. Let the multitude of isles be glad thereof. And finally, Psalm 99 verse 1. The Lord reigneth. Let the peoples tremble. He sitteth between the cherubim. Let the earth be moved. So these enthronement psalms, they exalt the God of heaven to his rightful, regal, royal, ruling role. This is the one who rules. The Lord God reigneth. He is clothed with majesty. Just two little questions about this Lord. Who is he that reigns? This is Yahweh. This is Jehovah. This is the personal covenant-keeping, redeeming God, the one who has chosen a people for himself, the one who has redeemed a people for himself, and the one who will keep a people for himself. In Psalm 98, verses 2 and 3, we read, The Lord hath made known his salvation, his righteousness hath he openly shown in the sight of his nations. He hath remembered his mercy and his truth toward the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. 
If you're a Christian this morning, this is your God, the covenant-keeping God who has redeemed you and who will keep you. Second question, how long has he reigned? Well, the answer is always. In verse 2, we read, Thy throne is established of old. Thou art from everlasting. And if you go back to Psalm 90, the first two verses, Lord, thou hast been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever thou hast formed the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, thou art God. So this is the God that reigns. He is Yahweh, he is Jehovah, and he has always reigned. And he always reigns irrespective of whether times are good or whether times are bad. Because if you think back to when Moses was at the burning bush, times were difficult for the children of Israel in the land of Egypt. God was still ruling, even though they were going through difficult times. And he says, I've heard the cries of my people, and I'm come down to deliver them. And our God, he rules and he reigns even when he gives peoples and nations over to their sins. He's still in sovereign control. In Romans chapter 1, we read of the immorality that was pertaining at that time in Rome, and he was giving people over to what they wanted, their excesses. And in some ways, we look out in the world that you and I are living in, and sometimes we think that nations and peoples have been given over to their lustful excesses in this day and age. But don't think that God has lost control when that happens. No, he's in sovereign control. And this God not only reigns, but he is clothed with majesty. Uh, we live in a monarchy in the United Kingdom, and uh, I can actually remember back when Queen Elizabeth was crowned at her coronation back in 1953. And she had to be robed in royal garments in order to declare that she was her majesty. But our God is naturally majestic. He is not clothed with emblems of majesty, but with majesty itself. You listen to King David in his prayer of 1 Chronicles 29 and verse 11. He says, Thine, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. Our God is naturally majestic. He doesn't need anyone to robe him to make him majestic. That is his natural state. So we have a dogmatic declaration. The Lord reigneth. He is clothed with majesty. Then secondly, in this psalm, we see sovereign strength. In the second part of verse 1, The Lord is clothed with strength wherewith he hath girded himself. And the start of verse 4, The Lord on high is mightier. You know, in the Old Testament, clothing was very often an outward expression of a person and his role in life. I'm sure perhaps over the years, if you're a Christian of reasonably long standing, you've maybe heard sermons preached on the garments of the high priest. And these would be uh, emblematic of, of his role uh, in life. And certainly garments indicate a level of status. Uh, Joseph uh, was the favorite son, of course, of Jacob, and he was given uh, a coat 
translated as many colors, whether it was that or not, uh, some commentators are not sure, but it may have had sort of wide flowing sleeves, it may have had a deep garment, and it was a kind of kingly robe. And of course, later when he talked about the dream that he had and the interpretation that his brothers would one day bow down to him as if he was a sovereign, well, they, they weren't too happy uh, about that. But certainly, clothes uh, indicate uh, the station in life uh, of some people. So kingly garments... They represent strength and power. But earthly kings and queens, they have to be presented with these items. Uh, again, going back to uh, our queen when she was crowned in 1953, she had all these splendid garments on, and then she was given the orb and the scepter, which were indications that she had the power to rule over uh, the United Kingdom and the Commonwealth. So somebody had to present these to her. But not so with our God. It says he here that he has girded himself. When he, he moves in power, he doesn't need any outside help. Remember again the words of David's prayer. Thine, O Lord, is the greatness and the power. Our God is naturally, innately powerful and great. He was strong to create and sustain he was strong to redeem and to keep. And one day in the future, he will be strong to return and to judge the world. So we have a dogmatic declaration and we have sovereign strength. Then thirdly, we see what I would call divine determination. In verse 1b, it says, The world also established that it cannot be moved. Our God has revealed his plans and his purposes through his written word. He has declared the end from the beginning. And we need to know that he has revealed to us that one day time will end. This world as we know it will not go on indefinitely. One day time will end and eternity will be ushered in. And it will be ushered in in his timing, not when... People like, I know you remember Harold Camping in America last year, a year or two, he made several predictions as to when the end of the world was going to end. Uh, well, we're not to do that. The times and the seasons belong to God. And just as when the fullness of time came and Christ came forth, so when the fullness of time, according to God's timing, has come, Christ will return and eternity will be ushered in. And God will accomplish his purposes, despite the efforts of uh, earthly kings and rulers and monarchs who think that they are mightier than the God of heavens. You know, they make their plans to uh, try and thwart our God's plans. And uh, basically, Psalm 2 tells us that God laughs at such puny efforts. Peter reaffirmed the divine determination of our God. In 2 Peter 3, 9 to 10, he said, The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, but the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night. The heavens shall pass away, the elements shall melt, the earth also shall be burned up. The world established, man cannot move it, but one day God can and he will move it. 
Of course, we live in a world that is populated by sinful rebels. And they are pictured in verses 3 and 4. They're pictured as the floods and the waters. But you know, they're no match for the God who rules over us. You may say, well, are you sure these references to floods uh, refer to rebellious sinners? Well, back in Psalm 18 and verse 4, we read this, The sorrows of death compassed me, and the floods of ungodly men made me afraid. So the actions of ungodly men, sinful rebels, are pictured as floods. But our God, he is mightier, that's for sure. And uh, we we read uh, that the Lord on high is mightier than the noise of many waters. I don't know if you remember the video footage of the tsunami back on Boxing Day in 2004. And you saw this tsunami approaching and just wiping out solid buildings as if they were just matchsticks. And our God is mightier than the noise of mighty waters. God's plans and purposes will not be thwarted. The determinant counsel of God, as Peter described it, will prevail. Fourthly, we then see what I would call trustworthy truth. In verse 5, we read, Thy testimonies are very sure. History testifies to the truth of God's word. The Lord Jesus Christ echoed its reliability as truth in his great high priestly prayer in John 17, 17. He said, thy word is truth. And I'm sure if we were to invite people forward here to give their testimony, to give a little account of how things have progressed during their Christian life, I think that they too would say, thy testimonies are very sure. So when we read that verse, we should give a hearty amen and endorsing what the psalmist said. Fifthly, in this little psalm, we see heavenly holiness. Verse 5, it says, Holiness becometh thine house, O Lord, forever. John mentioned one of the ingredients of the fruit of the Spirit, which is love. And that is a great attribute of our God. He is a loving God. He's a long-suffering God. He's a gracious God. He's a merciful God. He's a just God. Those are some of the great attributes of our God. But you know something? Those are not the greatest attributes of our God. The attribute that is the greatest and sets our God apart from all else is his holiness. Our God is holy, spelt W-H-O-L-L-Y, holy, spelt H-O-L-Y. He is holy, holy. He's described as light, and that means intellectually he's total truth. Morally, he is perfect purity. In a little devotional by Martin Lloyd-Jones, when he was thinking on the phrase from Uh, the prayer that the Lord taught his disciples, and it says, Hallowed be thy name. Martin Lloyd-Jones wrote this. Can you imagine God? Can you picture him? God is utterly and absolutely holy, so much so that we cannot imagine him, eternal in his holiness 
and his absolute perfection. <clears throat> it's interesting that there are several visions of the heavenly throne, one in Isaiah. And there are the creatures around the throne. They cry, holy, holy, holy. And in the book of Revelation, that is echoed in Revelation 4 by the four living creatures who again cry, holy, holy, holy. And we must never relegate the holiness of God below his other attributes. There's a great move and has been for some time to elevate the love of God to being the supreme attribute of God. And whilst the love of God is truly wonderful and marvelous, you will never understand it until you understand the holiness of God. Because when you understand the holiness of God, you say, how could that holy God ever love a wretched sinner like me? I had a brief immigration to Vancouver back in 1970 for about five months. And before I left, my father gave me a little New Testament, and I wasn't a believer in those days. And he inscribed in it to Cecil from mom and dad, Romans 5 verse 8. But God demonstrated his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. My father was trying to show that the love of God was truly marvelous when we consider the holiness of God and his abhorrence of sin. And yet this God in love sent his son to die for a wretch like me. Exodus 15 and verse 11 the children of Israel had just passed through the waters of the Red Sea and Pharaoh's army tried to follow them. Of course, they were drowned in the waters that float over them. And there was a great song of praise rose up. And it says, Who is like thee amongst the gods, majestic in holiness, even in the judgment of of wretched sinners, the holiness of God was exalted. And of course, we see that at Calvary, because the holiness of God required that the penalty of sin should be paid. And so we saw Christ suffering on the cross, because a holy God required sin to be atoned for. I've mentioned Calvary, and that brings me to the Lord Jesus Christ. And you know, we can see him in Psalm 93, if we take the five little headings, a, a dogmatic declaration, the Lord reigneth, he is clothed with majesty. That points to Christ. But Christ said in Matthew 27, all power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. And earlier in Matthew 11, he said, all things are delivered unto me of my Father. In Matthew chapter 22, he was in one of his many debates and discussions with the Pharisees about who he was, and he referred them to the words of Psalm 110, and he applied them to himself. And uh, John MacArthur, in his study Bible notes of Psalm 110, said this, This psalm contains one of the most exalted prophetic portions of Scripture, presenting Jesus Christ as both a holy king and a royal high priest. Psalm 110 declares Christ's current role in heaven as the resurrected Savior. You see, this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, he sat down at the right hand of God, and there he sits and rules and reigns until all his enemies shall be made his footstool. 
So the Lord Jesus Christ reigns, and he too is clothed with majesty. Uh, William Hendrickson, in his uh, book, More Than Conquerors, which is his exposition of the book of Revelation, uh, he refers uh, to the vision of the Son of Man in the opening chapter. And he says, Notice that the Son of Man is here pictured as clothed with power and majesty. That long royal robe, that golden belt buckled at the breast, that hair so glistening white, that like snow in which the sun is shining, it hurts the eye. So when we read in Psalm 93, the Lord reigneth, he is clothed with majesty, we see a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. Sovereign strength. I referred earlier to the sovereign strength of God in creation, in redemption, and in judgment. Well, who was the creator? In John 1 verse 3, referring to Christ, all things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In Colossians chapter 1 and verse 16, for by him were all things created, not as the corrupt Jehovah's Witness Bible translates it, for by him were all other things created. Because you see, they believe Christ himself was created and he only created all other things. So their New World translation is a corrupt translation. In Revelation 3 and verse 14, Christ refers to himself as the beginning of the creation of God, and the Greek for the word beginning is arche, from which we get architect. So Christ was the creator, he was the architect of God's creation. And secondly, of course, he's the only redeemer of sinners. Peter said, you're not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. And Peter again says, there's no salvation in any other except Christ. And Christ will one day judge the world. Paul, when he was preaching in Mars Hill in Acts chapter 17, he says, God has appointed a day in which he will judge the world by that man whom he hath appointed. And of course, he's the one that he raised from the dead, the Lord Jesus Christ. So, sovereign strength. And then thirdly, in Christ we see divine determination. The Lord Jesus Christ knew what his mission was to be when he came to earth. And he kept referring to, the hour has not yet come at the wedding at Cana. He said to his mother, mine hour has not yet come. And in other occasions we read, the hour has not yet come. And then in Luke 9 it says, when the time was come that he should be received up, he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem. The Lord knew that the hour was approaching. And of course, in his great high priestly prayer, he opens it up in John 17, Father, the hour is come. So the life of Christ was characterized by his divine, divine determination to fulfill the mission to be, that had been entrusted to him. Fourthly, in Christ, we see trustworthy truth. Uh, John, in the opening chapter, says, The Word was made flesh and dwelt amongst us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And in John fourteen six, the Lord declared himself, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No wonder the people listening said, Never man spake as this. And then fifthly, in Christ we see heavenly holiness. He challenged people after he had pardoned the adulterous woman. He said, if 
And if you're without sin, let him cast the first stone. And he could have cast it because he was without sin. But none of the others could do that. They melted away. And then later he was talking to the Pharisees and he says, which one of you convinceth me of sin? He would even declare, the prince of this world cometh, but he hath nothing in me. Sadly, if the prince of the world came to me, he could point an accusing finger, and rightly so, because I'm a wretched sinner saved by grace. But not so with Christ. He was holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners. He always was and always will be impeccably sinless. And he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. So we can see Christ in Psalm 93. And as I come to close, I want to challenge everyone here this morning. Can Psalm 93 apply to us? In your life and mine, can we echo that dogmatic declaration? The Lord reigneth, he is clothed with majesty. Only the Lord can reign in the lives of Christians. Before the Lord can reign, he must be your savior. And I wonder if you're here this morning, before the Lord can reign, is he your savior? Has the Lord convinced you that in his sight, you're unholy as opposed to his holiness? And if that is the case, then the Lord has prescribed a penalty and a punishment for those who die in an unholy state. But the good news is that the Lord Jesus Christ came into this world to save sinners. Not only did he die the death to satisfy the wrath of God against sin, he also lived a perfectly sinless life. He wove out a robe of perfect righteousness that is given to all of those who trust in him for their salvation. The very last garment that the Lord took off before he was nailed to the cross was a seamless robe woven from the top to the bottom, and that is a picture of the perfect righteousness of Christ. And it was given into the hands of sinners as he went to the tree to suffer the punishment for sin. That is the great transaction of the gospel. My sins led on Christ. His righteousness clothes me. Tis done, the great transactions done. I am my Lord's and he is mine. What a wonderful gospel we have to proclaim. You know, often we sing, King of my life, I crown thee now. All to Jesus I surrender. Let the Lord have his way in your life every day. Do we ever have pangs of conscience? as we sing those words? Do we ever stumble over them? Because we know in many ways the Lord is not ruling in our lives as he should do. You know, the Lord spoke of people who would draw near to him with their mouth and honor him with their lips, but their hearts were far from them, and he labeled them as hypocrites. May the Lord deliver us from being hypocrites. Let us give him heartfelt love Let us echo that dogmatic declaration that in our lives, the Lord reigns. He's clothed with majesty. Secondly, do our lives exhibit sovereign strength? The Lord on high is mightier. 
Well, is that what happens to us in the face and in the teeth of temptation? Doesn't always happen, sadly. We all know we stumble and we fall. But let's resolve as we go from here today that we will truly look to the one. Greater is he that is in us than the one who is in the world. And with the temptation, there's always an escape route, as he tells us in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 13. So let's be looking for that escape route. In our lives, do we have a divine determination? Are we established and unmovable as Christians? You know, God has made a wonderful promise in the opening verses of Philippians chapter 1. He has promised that he that hath begun a good work in us, he will perform it, he will accomplish it, he will finish it. That is what God has promised. But we have to cooperate with him. In Philippians chapter 2, the next uh, chapter, it says we have to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. We don't work for our salvation. We could never do that. But the salvation that God has worked into our lives, we must work out. And so we must cooperate. We must be day and daily be filled with the indwelling Holy Spirit. We must allow him to rule over every aspect of our life. We must not quench that Holy Spirit. We must not grieve that Holy Spirit. We must submit lovingly and willingly to his actions. So for you and me, there must be a divine determination as one of the old choruses went, no turning back, no turning back. Fourthly, are we living examples of trustworthy truth? Is what we say very sure? Is our yea, yea, and is our nay, nay? Not only are we to be people of the word, we must be people of our word. A man or a woman is only as good as his word. Politicians are famous for making promises and breaking them. That seems to be par for the course. Well, we must not be like that. We must be regarded as people who exhibit trustworthy truth. And then fifthly, do our lives mirror heavenly holiness? Our body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. Does holiness become it? That is to be our goal in life. And the Apostle Peter knew it, and he was a man who had his moments of great unholiness. When we think of him in the gardens of Caiaphas, the high priest, when the Lord was on trial, and not only did he deny the Lord, but he did so with swearing and curse words. And yet this same Peter, as the Lord worked on him and by his Spirit would write later, but as he who hath called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation, because it is written, Be ye holy, for I am holy. A wonderful psalm, a short psalm, but it is a psalm that as a believer, if you have despair, if you have doubts, if you're depressed, take your eyes off the circumstances and look rather to the Lord who reigns, the one who has saved you, and the one who will keep you. And if you're not in Christ this morning, I commend him to you. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Amen.